Sup Thrill Seekers, I'm Connor. And I'm Dev. And you're listening. To Mass Hysteria. Ooh, that was a fun intro. We've been whisper singing Adele, so that's why. Welcome or welcome back to Mass Hysteria, your favorite local podcast, weekly podcast. Um, just kidding. I hope so. If it is, leave us a nice review and comment. If it's not, um, Keep kindly please. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, we welcome constructive criticism. We do, we but grow. send it to our private email. Uh, no, <laughs> um, but no, I. So I've been getting a lot of uh, questions about if I'm holding connor hostage and i just wanted to give him a chance to speak about that she is uh that's not the script uh he wants to tell you he's he's not a is that word hostage hostage uh devin lets me out on thursdays i'm fed and provided for. i'm fed and provided for (laughs) Um, we're obviously being a little spoofy, but in all seriousness, Connor will be leading today's episode. Is that too loud? But, what? Am I too loud? Yeah, you are too loud. Okay, I'll uh, talk louder. I'm sorry, everyone at home. But before, he's getting a little, you know, zealous for his I'm time to shine. I'm a little big for shine. my britches. That's my moment. Uh, in all actuality, black. he is. If anyone has britches to donate, please see above address. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but before he jumps right in, we do have... A mass hysterical. Uh, again, we will provide timestamps if you are not interested in our um, honestly pretty boring lives. Occasionally, something happens to us that's mildly entertaining. We are aware that we're not that great. We're not that great, but we we make ourselves laugh. Does that if that counts for anything? Um, so yeah, if you just came to hear a cold case story, completely understand. I will leave the timestamp to to skip ahead. If you, like us, talk to limited humans throughout the week and want to share your thoughts on the internet for uh, a couple of minutes, um, please listen up because we like to share something lighthearted before we talk about a serious crime just because we all think we could use a little chuckle in our lives and especially in these weeks where we, most of us are staying home. So again, we take... And there's a lot going on in the world. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We... um, obviously take the cold, the cold cases or any cases we're doing seriously but we just like to start off with something kind of silly before we dive right in so um someone once a- someone asked me recently like oh to talk about our friendship they were like oh what did you get connor for christmas like you see him all the time what did you get for christmas and i was like oh i you know i got him and his boyfriend like a bunch of you know self-care stuff because connor is a student for the first time i'm sure he needs to unwind relax Connor, would you like to tell the people what you got me for Christmas? <laughs> this is honestly the best gift I've ever given anyone. I gave Devin these little kittens. They are cat statues, and their arms are raised above their head. And you might ask why. Their arms are raised above their head in just such a way that if... You use them as a team. They can hold items. <laughs> a team. Get <laughs> They can hold uh, a glass. They can hold a phone. But even more special than these things, 
these kittens came with their own personal coffin. <laughs> so they can just be little pallbearers on Devin's desk. I would like to reiterate, I gave him a body scrub, like a lush gift basket type of thing. Connor gave me plastic cats holding a coffin <laughs> above their head. I, I think my gift is better, but we'll leave that up to you. Vote to in decide. the comments. Um, but yeah, in all seriousness, actually, I'll, I'll throw a pic on the Insta of that present that still oh, haunts do. me. Ooh, we'll do that. That'll um, be our picture this week. <laughs> so without further ado... Connor has a long one. He's been spending a lot of time on this, and I don't know anything about it. So I am excited to hear what you've researched. Yes, yes, it's very exciting. Yeah, so in keeping with our our theme as of late, we are covering another cold case this week. And this one takes place in Salem, New Hampshire. So September 19th of 1990 was probably a normal day for most of us. But for me... I had not graced the world with my birth yet, so I wouldn't know Graced, if the world was that cursed. great. Um, it probably wasn't. I can ask my dad because he's really old, so he can probably fill us in on 1990. If you're wondering why we keep bringing this joke up, it's because he doesn't listen and he'll never know that we say that he's born in the 1850s. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. For many, this was probably just a regular Wednesday. But for Sandra Borner, it was the day that her life and her family's lives changed forever. Sandra and her brother John lived on the same street in Salem, New Hampshire. It was Arthur Street. Um, so on this day, Sandra went over to John's house because I don't, I couldn't find exactly why she went there. I mean, it's her brother, so maybe she was just visiting. Maybe she hadn't heard from him. Do they both? They both lived they in both Salem. They both lived in Salem. I know, and on the same street, Arthur Street. I know that John lived in a trailer. I don't know if. Sandra lived in a trailer, or if she had an apartment or house, but John lived in a trailer. So, anyway, Sandra went over to check on him, and she was shocked and horrified by what she saw. John was slumped over on the floor. He'd fallen out of his wheelchair. He was paralyzed, and he'd been stabbed to death. His apartment was a mess, with blood smeared on the walls and floor, indicating that this hadn't been, like, a quick... A quick death. This said that he had struggled and he'd fought back. And in addition to the smears, once the police were called, they found um, a bloody sneaker print at the scene. And the print was identified as a New Balance sneaker. So just file that away for later. And, you know, the police obviously were quick to rule this a homicide, you know. Um, but the specific circumstances around it, um, they were kind of clouded because... There was just a lot of stuff going on. There was a past criminal history. Like he had a past criminal history? He had a past criminal okay. history. Family members had a past criminal history. There was some toxic relationships. There was jealousy. And the whole story is just, it's pretty tragic. So John Pond was 26 years old when he was murdered. And he was described by family as a generous and good-hearted person. And while he'd not lived a blemish-free life, his mother, Diana, in an interview shortly after he died, I believe it was in 1991, Diana believed, it was his stepmother, I believe, not his mother, um, Diana believed that he was turning a corner. Um, John had been in and out of trouble for many years, and in fact, the reason he was paralyzed is because of a police altercation when he was 19 years old. So I didn't do a ton of research on this case, but... Basically, he was in Lawrence, Massachusetts. He was known in the area. And um, I think he was smoking a blunt or something. And there was two other people with him. 
and the police believed they were witnessing a drug deal. Also, this was 1990, so even smoking marijuana was still pretty illegal. Um, so anyway, the police believed they were witnessing a drug deal, and so as they headed towards these people, shots were fired at the police, and so they fired back. John turned and tried to run, but he was shot in the back, and that left him paralyzed for the rest of his life. Was he one of the people that shot? At the officers, or was it It's unclear friends? even okay. to this day. So the police recovered shells, but a gun was never recovered. Okay. So they don't know. And even at this point, John still maintained his innocence, even though he was being charged with two counts of armed assault with intent to commit murder, two counts of assault with a dangerous weapon, and a single count of illegal possession of a firearm. But again, they never actually found the gun from mm-hmm. the research i found and there was two other people involved and i don't he's know only 19 names. he was 19 Jeez. but this also wasn't the for his first crime either oh. but anyway he was eventually acquitted by a judge in this case because they didn't have enough evidence and he was on probation at this time so okay. it wasn't like unheard of that the police were kind of you know wondering what was going on or suspected him of something but he claimed that the Lawrence police had constantly been harassing him and they never left him alone and and now they'd shot him. So John did go on to sue the Lawrence police or the city of Lawrence and he was awarded $200,000. Oh, wow. Yeah. We're not agreeing with the outcome. We're not agreeing with the police. What happened? I honestly don't really, I don't have a clear picture of what happened, but it just kind of provides context that this was not John's first crime. John was paralyzed because of a, police involved shooting and not saying again like, yeah again, not we saying don't, that he should he sh- obviously shouldn't have been shot in the back, exactly he shouldn't have been shot in the back we don't know the circumstances but he wasn't a stranger to crime so we're just kind of trying to provide i'm trying to provide context for who he was so he won two hundred thousand dollars but that two hundred thousand dollars didn't last him all that long um i don't know if he spent it unwisely or spent it on medical bills his stepmother said that he suffered from medical issues for the rest of his life after um, being shot and paralyzed, which makes sense. Um, and he was pretty angry and depressed at times. But even in a wheelchair, John still lived outside the law. He taught kids the finer points of burglary and taught them how to break into homes. And he would then buy stolen items off of them for money or for drugs, and he would peddle them later. So he was involved with criminals and drug dealers so, and this was after he was paralyzed, up to the time of his death. Um, John did have one son with a girlfriend, and his stepmother says that he was worried that he wouldn't be a good father. And kind of makes sense, because, I mean, even at the time of his death, he was wanted for burglary and other cr- crimes in Stoneham, Mass., and somewhere else, but I can't remember the other town. But basically, even at this point, you know, he's still making some bad decisions, but... Again, his stepmother Diana said that he really was going to try to turn his life around. Apparently, he told her that he planned to move closer to his son, who I believe lived in Pennsylvania at the time with his uh, mother, the son's mother. Um, So regardless of what he was guilty of or wasn't guilty of or was involved in, John's murder was senseless. And, you know, to this day, we can only wonder if he would have really turned his life around because he never got the chance. So anyway, back to that day on September 19th of 1990 paul marshad was a um, detective that had been at his job with the salem police department for less than a month when the pond murder was assigned to him 
And due to John's involvement with various drug dealers and criminals, the list of suspects was pretty long. It seemed kind of endless. And they, you know, the police and Marshad, they interviewed tons of people. They looked into a bunch of people and they just couldn't find any drug dealers or other criminals that seemed to have motive to kill him. Yeah. Okay. I was wondering, did he have, at the time of his death, did he have any known enemies? There was, by the time the case kind of was wrapping up, the Marshad and other police had a strong hunch of who was responsible, but there was no solid evidence that could link this person. And they couldn't find any witnesses that would come forward, which I'll talk about in a, a witness in a minute. But So John also had a brother. He had a brother and a sister at least. Not sure if there was more siblings than that, but I know he had a brother and a sister. And his brother was named Michael. Um, he also had a criminal record. And he'd been released from prison just days before John was murdered. He was released September 13th. And John was murdered the 19th, so six days, less than a week. Um, Michael had a girlfriend at the time of his imprisonment that she'd actually broken up with him, but her name was Paula Gothier. And after he got out of prison, she got they got back in contact with each other. At this time, Paula was dating a different man, and it was a, a violent guy who was also a criminal. His name was Mark Craig. Um, a lot of crime in <laughs> Mark was jealous of Paula, um, and pretty, it seems like he was pretty controlling and he feared that she wasn't over Michael. So in the days leading up to, um, Michael's release, he got more violent, um, was accusing her, you know, accusing her of wanting to get back together with Michael. He knew it was coming up and he got into a fight with some guy at a bar, um, just some random guy. And he cut his hand with some glass and he went home drunk and, asked Paula to like help him clean it up. And so she took some glass out of it and um, wrapped it all up for him. And um, on the night of September 18th, which is the night before um, John was found the night he was, this was actually the night he was murdered. Paula was with Michael and she was actually visiting John and Sandra on Arthur street. So John, Michael and Sandra were all close. And they, it seems like, yeah, they were pretty, it okay. seems like they were pretty close from what I could find. Well, I was wondering when you mentioned that Michael got out of prison, if he was ever considered a suspect, Michael, or no? I mean, he may have been, not that I could find. Most of the information I found came It's just inconvenient out. timing. Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. So after the visit with Sandra and John, Paula and Michael went to the movies, and after that, they ended up returning to Sandra's house to spend the night there together. And during that night... Mark was looking for her and he was calling them and kind of trying to stalk them, trying to find out where they were. And when she returned home the next morning, she found that Mark in his fit of rage had slashed her waterbed, which how nineties is that to have a waterbed? My parents actually had one. Um, so he slashed it with a knife. He knew that she was seeing Michael and he was angry about her seeing Michael and he was angry with the whole pawn family um, Jeez. Was she was she tech was she like? I am not sure if she'd broken Mark? up with okay, him or not. Cool. But like, I mean, it's understandable why he's mad because Paula is or was his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. But the kind of the thing is, is that Michael and Paula had a long history. They'd been in a long relationship before Michael had gone to jail, and they had two kids together. So like, it's kind of understandable and so not surprising that when they got out. When Mark, Michael got out, you know, they would get back together. 
But regardless of that, Mark was pissed and he made threats um, against Michael. And this was all reported to the police. Um, Mark was interviewed. At the time, he was pretty hostile, but insisted that he had not seen any of the pawns for months. Um, Wait, whether that's, they, why would he say that? That's so easy to check, Yeah, exactly. Right? Whether they believed him or not, um, you know, it. They couldn't. they didn't really have any evidence at this point pinning him to it. Like, there was blood and stuff at the crime scene. They knew it was um, John's, but there was, this is 1990 in New Hampshire. They didn't have DNA yet. Um, so whether they believed him or not, which they didn't, they couldn't prove otherwise. Um, so, you know, like, like they did tell him that, you know, he'd been, that Mark had been stalking Michael and Paula and, you know, the family was really worried that night about what would happen, but, you know, no one had thought he would go after John, but they did kind of, you know, at this point now they kind of suspect it. But again, um, there was not enough evidence to like, there was a lot of evidence, but there wasn't enough to really tie it to him. Like they couldn't prove it and they couldn't like find a reason to like get, you know, even DNA or anything from him. They're not friends. So he's just like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So there was another lead that, that the police had. And it was that someone had seen a red pickup truck parked at Mark's on March 18th, like around 11 PM. My mom. Um, Exactly. And Mark, didn't have a red pickup truck. So that's like, oh, maybe this is another suspect. So they did a lot of digging and they were able to find that the truck belonged to um, a guy named Dennis Razis and he worked for a local pizza place. And they did interview Dennis, um, but he was pretty uncooperative and he insisted that he knew nothing. I'm honestly not exactly sure what he told the police at the time his reasoning for being there was, but he... um, was actually there to buy a radio, probably a stolen one, which he was getting married, probably kind of didn't want to get into trouble. You know, I don't think he told the police why he was there. I'm not sure. Was but he the in the, like, John crime ring going on? I don't think so. Okay. I think that he just, like, was people knew that John sold He's, items that were stolen. Yeah. They may not have known they were stolen. I'm sure they knew that they were coming from illegitimate places. Okay. So, you know, I mean... People do that. So it, it is not like an unheard of thing. It wasn't a Radio Shack radio. No, exactly. They knew that this was like a stolen or used, confiscated, who knows, radio. So, you know, again, they're suspicious of this, but they couldn't make him cooperate and they couldn't prove anything. Mm-hmm. So throughout the years, this case just continued to grow colder and colder. And Detective Paul Marshad, um, it was always kind of bothered and haunted by it. And he would pour over the files and he'd try to fi- make all these pieces fit. He knew that they should, but he couldn't make them stick. These are the people that I love. Like I the know. ones that never give up I know. on it's finding so cool. an answer. Um, so in 2003, which this is crazy, I didn't realize that that's how long it took, but apparently 2003 was when DNA became available to the police. It may have been available before then. This may just have been a low priority. I'm not sure. But... Marshad was able to send some evidence from the crime, like blood, off to be analyzed. And surprisingly, in addition to John's DNA, there was DNA from another person at the crime scene. But this is, you know, 2003. DNA was still fairly new, and there was no hits in the database on it. And then, in 2004, Mark Craig, who was in prison for her other crimes... Um, died while he was in prison 
So just it like kind of seemed like at this point, um, Marshawn like, is like, he... I think he died of a drug overdose, okay. but I'm not sure. Um, but at this point, like Paul Marshawn was like, okay, well, I guess any information that Mark knew it's now is, gone. N- is now gone. At the same time, like, I guess Paul was kind of like, well, good riddance in a sense, because he was a bad guy and probably was responsible for this crime. So he's like, in a, in a sense, I guess justice was served, just not the kind of justice we would like, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so. Especially because a stabbing is so such a grisly crime. Exactly. I'm not saying that like shooting is better than stabbing someone. No, I, what no. I am saying is don't touch anyone. But exactly. it, like there's something just extra personal about someone stabbing someone exactly. else. Exactly. No, exactly. So what Paul, Detective Paul Marshall did after at this point was pretty smart so he couldn't um because he didn't have enough evidence to say like to obtain dna he couldn't actually test it but he asked the coroner where mark's body was to save a vial of mark's blood and so he was like down the road i'm gonna try to figure out how to incorporate this he's so smart yeah he's really smart so he just, you know, that's just a little piece of evidence in the back pocket. He doesn't have it. It was at the at the lab or whatever, the coroner's office, wherever it was, state lab probably. And so the case just kind of continued, continued to sit after that. And it went unsolved for 22 years. But fast forward to 2009 when police, when New Hampshire founded the cold case unit which is where a lot of our cases have been coming from and this is like just so really well laid out if you cool want to see unit yeah you yeah, should they... do some research on this they have a website right they have a website massachusetts yeah. has it by district but it's just harder some of the districts don't have like yeah up-to-date yeah uh, breakdowns but new hampshire chef's kiss that's awesome everything's organized it's very easy to read and like learn more about the cases and hopefully more of them will get solved exactly. a lot of them are getting solved exactly so that's really that's really so awesome. if you're interested in any of those you should definitely check it out the department of justice new hampshire website yeah so in 2009 uh paul marshad was retired um but detective james chase sergeant detective in salem um believed that the pawn case was pretty solvable and he kind of thought like okay well what better person to help me with this than paul marshad so he Got Paul Marshad to come out of retirement to Wait, help solve this. Wait, that's so case. cool. I know. And so they also were able to, I think it was Sergeant Detective Chase that convinced, I don't know who, but like some some legal person to um, allow them to compare DNA. So basically, he was like, um, Mark Craig is dead. He ha- should have no expectations of privacy anymore. So, let us compare the DNA. So, they compared the DNA, and it was a match. But it's actually kind of funny. So, like, when they called the lab, like, looking for the blood, the lab was like, um, I think we have it. We'll call you back. So, like, that was, like, a whole, like, oh, no. But they did have it, fortunately. And, And this was, like, what? This was, like, probably 2010, 2011. And so, like, the fact that they'd saved it, that was, like, six years ago. That's great that they saved it, you know. Um, So they found it. It was a match. And they worked closely. Chase and Marshad, they worked really closely with the cold case unit detectives. Mm -hmm. And they were finally able to interview that guy from the pizza shop, Dennis Razzies, again. And this time it was under subpoena in front of a grand jury. So Razzies told the jury that he'd gone to John's to buy a radio 
and Mark Craig had answered the door. Um, and this is like a quote from an article I did a lot of the research from, from the New Hampshire magazine. It was written by Kevin Flynn and Rebecca Lavoie. There's several articles. We'll link them, obviously. Um, but so Mark Craig like cracked the door open and Dennis could hear John yelling in the background, but, um, Craig told Razzis, he was like, you don't want to see him. And, um, Pond yelled from the background, um, call, call the police. This guy's going to stab me. Wait, yeah. why, so why didn't Dennis take so long to tell them that? So I think, I'm not totally sure. I think he was scared for probably his own life because he knew he'd been seen. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, yeah. I guess, um, Mark Craig was like over six feet tall, like six two, like a big, like football player looking guy. And it was like, he was a criminal. He was a bad, scary guy. So I think between being afraid that he was going to like that Mark would retaliate against him or like send someone else after him. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, that he was, you know, trying to like figure out his own life. He was trying to get married. He just like kind of wanted to skate by. He also was there buying an illegal radio. So, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, that's a really petty crime, but you know, I'm sure for him, he was young. All of this played into it, but even better for the legitimacy of this testimony was that on his way home, he, called his fiance who's now his wife he called her and told her everything that happened so she knew all of these years and so the wife was able to like corroborate his whole testimony which makes it even you know an even better testimony so now they have this they have the dna and um the other piece of evidence that really helped was paula gothier remember the girlfriend she told the police that mark loved new balance sneakers Death by dad shoes. Mm-hmm. Death by dad shoes. I like it. So a state lab criminologist checked some floorboards that had been cut. Again, like they, they did a meticulous job saving evidence. Although I guess like it had been stored in a trailer and like behind this police department or something. And like when they went back, when Chase and Marshad went back to get the evidence, like it had been kind of destroyed by mice and stuff. But fortunately, they already had the DNA and stuff. So all of that was safe. And they had cut pieces of the floor out. So they saw the tacky New Balance logo. Mm-hmm. So they were able to like figure out these were New Balance shoes, and they were also Mark's size. So that's another great piece of evidence. So based on the testimony and the DNA and the prints, Mark Craig, even after death, was found guilty of murdering John Pond on September 18th of 1990. And they don't believe, because of Dennis Razzi's testimony, they don't believe there's any accomplices or anything. It was mark and he killed him in retaliation because michael was dating paula oh that's so sad so probably he wanted to go after someone that michael, michael cared about or and maybe like john wouldn't give him up like we'll obviously never know exactly what happened in that apartment or that um trailer because they're both gone but the case was solved in 2012 so it is now no longer a cold case it's almost 10 years it's been solved mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the family of John was told, and I guess, like, um, the one article I read said that their response was, like, kind of underwhelming. Like, I kind of understand that because, like, number one, they kind of always thought this was the case. Number two, it just, like, opens old wounds for them. And, like, yeah, the case is closed, and that's great, but, like, they'll never get their family member back. You know, so it's really, um, that must be really painful for them. 
Um, a quote that I thought was really great to close this out with from the New Hampshire Magazine article was, um, quote, as for the John Pond investigation, the final act took place in a government hallway. A memo was placed in the front of a th- on the front of a thick, well-organized file. The word closed was written on the cover, and the paperwork was moved from a cabinet of a hundred or so whodunits to the one where justice, however small or uncelebrated, is stored, end quote. So I just thought that was a great quote to end it with. And um, and also for the – because they can't change anything that happened with the crime. It's it's nice that the detective got to finally see it be closed after yeah, spending exactly. so much time doing it. Which is really cool. And, you know, kudos to everyone that worked on this case. Like, it was really well organized, even though it took them a long time to solve it just because of, like, logistic things. Like, you think, like, oh, why couldn't they solve this earlier? But, like, there was barriers in the way, and it wasn't easy to do, but – it that was done. a wild one. It is wild. Never trust someone that wears New Balance sneakers. Never trust someone that doesn't need your dad. Yeah, my dad and my brother. All right. Well, we'll close it out on that. <laughs> Have a good kidding. night, everyone. <laughs> See you next week, <laughs> Bye. guys.